you open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, today we're going to look at the Lord's sixth illustration given to correct the oral traditions of the Jews that stood over and against God's perfect law. So we're continuing our study in the Sermon on the Mount. Today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to start at verse 43, and we'll read through verse 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we turn to your word now, God, I pray you would speak to your people. Uh, Lord, your word is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. Uh, Lord, your word is God-breathed, inspired, and profitable for training, for rebuke, for correction, uh, and training in righteousness, Lord, and I pray your word would do its work. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. While traditions of man that stand over and against the word of God can be catastrophic. The scribes and Pharisees during the days of Christ were notorious at this, inventing their own systems of morality and traditions of man that negated the very word of God. And we see this throughout uh, Jesus' entire ministry. Uh, Matthew chapter 15, Jesus gives a stern rebuke for the oral traditions, the traditions of the Jews, that they nullified the word of God. In Matthew 15, Jesus is answering a question about why his disciples break the tradition of the elders by not washing their hands when they ate bread. And asks them, them, Jesus does, why they transgress the very law of God for the sake of their traditions. And he gives the example that their tradition that they held to that said if they committed their finances to God that they did not have to honor their parents by helping them financially when they were in need. Then he gives them a stark rebuke from Isaiah 29 and said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Mankind has always and will always stumble over their own traditions. But you know, traditions can be a good thing. They're not always bad. We in the Reformed and confessional faith, we value church traditions where they align with Scripture. We value traditional creeds and confessions of the faith, although we do not exalt traditions over Scripture. On the other hand, the Roman Catholic Church, they hold church tradition to the level of Scripture which in fact in practicality actually trumps Scripture. Because in their view, where there's a conflict between the Word of God and tradition, church tradition, the Roman Catholic Church always veers on the side of tradition. However, today I see the exact opposite when it comes to historic church 
traditions. We live in a very anti-authoritarianism culture where historic traditions are rejected without exception. They're just flat out rejected. Anything that smells of, of history, anything that smells of church authority or spiritual authority or anything that smells of tradition is deemed as legalistic, man-made, religious, and therefore, according to many in our culture, is to be rejected. Instead, today's culture, our cultural Christianity, turns away from external forms of authority, including church authority, and looks inward to their own mystical and subjective standards of truth. And here's the irony, friends. While cultural Christianity rejects the rich history that we have in Reformed faith, uh, creeds, confessions, church authority, and so forth, while they reject all that, many have created and submitted to their own man-made traditions and created sacred cows of their own. If you've never heard sacred cow, uh, it's something that is a god and is an idol. And you try to poke one of these sacred cows and you get attacked for being legalistic or even having a harsh view of Scripture. And I'm going to give you a few examples, and some might get me in trouble here, but I stand by them. What I mean by this, one example of a modern-day church tradition that has become institutionalized and has become a sacred cow in evangelicalism is the idea of youth ministry or youth culture, youth pastors, youth groups. Instead of churches holding to the normative principles and patterns of Scripture, training moms and dads to be the spiritual leaders of their home, churches have sent the message that we have the experts. Send your kids to us. We'll evangelize your kids. We'll disciple your kids. Don't try this at home because we have the people that have the youth ministry degrees. Ignoring the fact that the normative commands and patterns in Scripture show clearly that parents are to be the means by which their own children are evangelized and discipled. Anywhere in the Scripture where you see a command for children to be evangelized or to the disciples, that command is not for the youth pastor. That command is for the mom and the dad. Youth groups and youth ministries have become, while they started with a good intention, they've become vehicles by which parents have abdicated their God-given duty and turned it over to the church. And this tradition, this has become a tradition in evangelicalism, and it's had devastating effects. It's no wonder why so many church kids are leaving the faith that they never had when they leave the church. So I agree with men like Vody Bauckham on this, who once said of youth ministry, quote, had no scriptural basis when it started, has had a detrimental impact on young people and on their families and on the church as a whole, as we have completely lost our way as it relates to bringing up and evangelizing and discipling the next generation, end quote. This is one example how a man-made tradition was institutionalized and has had a devastating impact on the next generation, where studies show over the last 20 years, studies have shown anywhere from 70% 
to 90% of kids who grow up in the children's church, in the youth groups, the youth programs, 70 to 90% of them leave the church when they leave the home. Another man-made tradition that has had catastrophic results in our culture and around the world that has been perpetuated by Christians is this man-made tradition that women who willfully commit premeditated murder of their own child inside the womb are always the second victim and are innocent, both before the law and before God. That has become a tradition in American Christianity. Well, friends, where there's no guilt, there's no need of the gospel. This tradition has robbed women of the grace of repentance and forgiveness in Christ. For those who have committed the willful act to take the life of their own child, there's forgiveness in Christ. But this tradition that women unequivocally are innocent has robbed women of the gospel to save them and forgive them of the sin of taking the life of their preborn baby. How about the traditional view? This has kind of been perpetuated over the last hundred years. There's been another tradition in Christianity that started coincidentally around the time where the government gave uh, churches a tax exemption status through the 501c3. Uh, There's been a church tradition now that Christians are to give unlimited submission to the government. So if they say you've got to shut down your church then Christians are to be good Christians and submit to the government, right? Unlimited authority. Now, I'm not saying that there's not to be submission to the government, so don't hear what I'm not saying. But over the last 50 to 100 years, there's been a tradition, because we thought we had a government that cares for the people, there's been a tradition that Christians are to give unlimited obedience to the government. So when they tell you to church your Shut your church down, you're just to do it because out of love for neighbor and obeying, uh, obeying the government. Uh, but praise God, because of what's happened over the last few years, it's, it's caused us to evaluate the sphere of authority that God has given the government and God has given the church. So praise God for churches who were in the very public limelight that said, no, wait a minute, we decide as a church when it's okay to meet. So I praise the Lord for churches like John MacArthur's church out in California who wrote a very public letter saying Jesus is Lord, he's king of the church, we are meeting, and they defied the government uh, in the area of meeting for the church. So these traditions creep into our lives and creep into the church. And this is exactly what Jesus was rebuking in our text in Matthew 15 and throughout his ministry. He was rebuking man-made traditions that stood over and against God's word. Here in this portion in the Sermon on the Mount, if you haven't been with us, Jesus gives six illustrations to rebuke the pharisaical traditions that either took away, added to, negated, or invalidated the word of God. And this section starts at chapter 5, verse seven or 17, where Jesus says that I did not come to abolish the law. And so he lays the, the grounds down for the rest of the chapter for the uh, validity and the perpetuity of God's law. He did not come to abolish the law. He came to confirm and establish it. 
Then Jesus gives these six illustrations in the rest of the chapter to correct the rabbi, the rabbinic oral traditions where they adulterated and misinterpreted God's law. Jesus didn't come to correct his own law. He didn't come to make a new law. He didn't come to add to. He uses these six illustrations to correct what the rabbis were teaching, their oral traditions, how they nullified God's word, and Jesus does it in a way to uphold the very law of God. The oral uh, traditions of the rabbis and the Jews would often uh, adulterate the external demands of the law while ignoring the internal demands of the law when it comes to the heart. The first illustration that he gives is in the sense of murder. Uh, the Jews held to only murder being an overt act, and Jesus said, no, whoever has anger in his heart towards his brother is guilty. And then Jesus addresses uh, adultery, and the act of adultery starts in the heart. He who lusts after a woman in his heart has already committed adultery with her. And then he addresses the idea of divorce and how they were looking for all kind of ways to divorce as long as they did the right paperwork, they weren't guilty. And says, Jesus says no, and he upholds the law. Then he addresses uh, the false view of uh, vows and oaths and upholds the law there. And then last week we went through eye for eye, tooth for tooth, where we saw that the Jews were taking what was reserved for the civil magistrate to establish justice and they were using it to create their own system of morality where they can retaliate with whatever type of crime was against them. So if someone slapped them, they were allowed to slap them back. Matter of fact, many rabbis taught that they were obligated because eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So personal retaliation is what Jesus was uh, upholding or was rebuking there. So now we're looking at this sixth illustration where Jesus says, starting in verse 43, you heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We're going to stop there. As I was studying for this text, I realized that I could not exhaust this text with one sermon. So we're actually going to look at this in a two-part series because there's quite a bit to unpack here. Today, I want to spend some more time on the devastating impacts of misinterpreting and misapplying God's word. And then next week, we will narrow in on what the law requires in regards to love, in regards to hate, uh, the requirement that Jesus gives here for loving your enemy, the reason he gives the requirement to love your enemy, and then the result of what happens when we obey Jesus here by loving your enemy. So we're going to dive more into the command next week. Uh, but today I really want to emphasize, brothers and sisters, the overarching principle that's in all of these illustrations in, in this chapter, but is really just glaring here on the devastating impact of what happens when we misinterpret and misapply God's law. So we're going to look at the overarching principle of the perpetuity and the validity of the law of God when it's rightly interpreted and rightly applied. This illustration, along with the other five, show us that God cares very much for proper exegesis of his word and how we must submit our own traditions to his word. Friend, God speaks with one 
voice. And because we are so inclined to create our own standards and systems of morality, which then become traditions, we must be diligent, friends, to read, study, and properly interpret God's word. You see, what you believe right now, you believe to be true. Amen? If you didn't, you wouldn't believe it. What you believe about God, Jesus, salvation, sanctification, biblical ethics, Christian practice, what you believe about evangelism, what you believe about parenting, what you believe about church, what you believe about family, what you believe about the government, and so on, you believe you are correct. Am I right? Again, if you didn't, you wouldn't believe it. Uh, As the scripture says, each man does what is right in his own eyes. We all believe what we believe is right because we believe it. And so, friends, those are called your presuppositions. But because we are infallible, we must be willing to challenge our own presuppositions with the word of God. And we must always be seeking to reform every area of our lives to the word. I see too many believers today adopt and change their beliefs, not because the word of God, but because of the persuasiveness of the person presenting those beliefs. Friends, that is dangerous ground to be on. And that's where the scripture says being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. If you're basing your beliefs upon the persuasiveness of the person and not being a noble Berean, as was commended in the book of Acts, and doing your own study to see if what is being said is accurate. Friends, you're going to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And that includes even what is preached from this very pulpit. If you're believing and taking the things that are preached from this pulpit without doing your own study, friends, you're on very dangerous, very dangerous ground. Here in our text and in this illustration, the Jews got the doctrine of love completely wrong, along with many others, and it had devastating effects. It had devastating effects. The Jewish nation was made by God to be a blessing to all the nations. The Jewish nation was made by God to be a light to the Gentiles and to the world. Their obedience to God's law was meant to be an example of righteousness among the pagan nations, but they failed by creating their own systems of morality. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4, and I'll show you what I mean. I mentioned it last week when we were talking about the civil government and how they used what was meant for the civil magistrate they were using in their personal retaliation. But look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. So, you know, Deuteronomy, it's all, uh, it's all basically Moses speaking. They're at the brink of the promised land. All the people who had crossed the Red Sea saved Moses uh, and a couple others were dead. Yet a new generation. Moses is giving the law again to the people. And look what he says in uh, chapter 4, first two verses. 
Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord, which your God, uh, the Lord your God, which I command you. Now look at verse 5. See, I have taught you statutes and judgment, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering and possess it. So all of those laws you read in Exodus, Leviticus, all of those laws from the moral law, from their civil laws, all of those laws and statutes that God gives, look what he says here in verse 6. So keep and do them. For this or that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this Part of the law, whole law, which I am setting before you today. In other words, God was telling the nation Israel that their obedience to his law was to show the surrounding pagan nations God's holiness, God's justice, and God's mercy to the neighboring nations. To show that they had a righteous God and they had righteous laws and righteous statutes. They were to be a light and a blessing to the Gentile nations. And this was, in fact, uh, ingrained from the very beginning of the nation. Before Egypt, before Moses, it was part of the Abrahamic covenant itself. So quickly go back to Genesis chapter 12. As a precursor that God gives to Abraham with a covenant he's going to make to Abraham. Look at what he says in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And I will bless those who bless you, and, I, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, you speak in Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Paul actually refers to this verse in Galatians 3 verse 8. He refers to that verse as the actual gospel itself. He says, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying all the nations will be blessed in you. So from the beginning, the Jewish nation was to be a blessing to all the nations, and in Jesus' day, it had became anything but because they were not showing love to the pagan nations, showing love to the Gentiles, but they were loving the Jewish people. They were having prejudice against the Gentiles, and their oral tradition taught them to love their fellow neighbors, which is the Jews to them, we'll get into that, and hate everybody else. And we see this again in Genesis 18, 18. Uh, You don't have to turn there. But since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 22, 18 again. In your seed, this speaks of Christ, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And then, uh, speaking to Isaac, Genesis 26, 4, God says, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven 
and will give your descendants all these lands and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And again in Genesis 28, 14, he says the same thing, that all the families of the earth through their descendants shall be blessed. Well, we of course know what happened. Israel's repeated rejection of God, rejection of his law, rejection of his prophets. And we fast forward to Jesus' Jesus' day. Israel was corrupt, and they corrupted the law of God with their oral traditions. And instead of being a light to the Gentiles and a blessing to all the nations, they became outward enemies to them, showing gross prejudice towards them, overtly and even commanding hatred towards them, all while believing they were actually fulfilling their duty. See, friends, that's the problems with our traditions. We don't even know we're an heir. The Jews of Jesus' day didn't even know they were an heir. We may think we're doing good. We may even have a positive outcome. But if our traditions or our presuppositions conflicts with God's normative commands and patterns in Scripture, we must be humble enough to repent and abandon our tradition. Jesus here in our text in Matthew 5 corrects another tradition held by the Jews that had devastating results. See, I believe that Jesus saved this one, this illustration last. Although we don't know, uh, he probably had more illustrations. This probably was a longer sermon than what we're reading. But I believe this is last. Either, either Jesus said it last or Matthew placed it last He saved it for last for two reasons. Because the severity by which the Jews missed God's word and the devastating effects that it had. And this illustration is the the mountaintop or the crescendo, if you will, of this portion of the sermon. It's like he's reached a peak because Jesus is addressing half of the law, half of the summary of the law to love your neighbor as yourself so this is half of the law that deals with our duty and it deals with our duty towards our fellow men let's look back at the text now jesus again as he does every illustration here opens with you heard that it was said he uses the words for you for hearing right he's referring to the rabbinic teaching that they've been taught over uh, the generations He said, you heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Some of your versions might have some of verse 43 in all caps, and that's referring to Old Testament scripture. If you'll notice, if that's your Bible, you shall love your neighbor is in all caps, but the rest of it is lowercase, and hate your enemy. Why? Because hate your enemy is nowhere to be found in the Old Testament but it had been taught during the time of Jesus. Well, this is the clearest example here that Jesus was not adding to or changing his law, but correcting the Pharisees' oral tradition that had been passed down through rabbinic teaching, which again had grave consequences. So where did they get this idea, hate your enemy? It's not anywhere to be found in the Old Testament. 
Well, the Jews, they had mistakenly narrowed the scope of who their neighbor was to be Jews and Jews only. So when they said, love your neighbor, oh yeah, we love our neighbors. Well, Jews are our neighbors, right? And archaeologists have even found such statements in Jewish writings during that day that spoke to this. So anyone else outside of the Jewish bloodline were considered enemies of God and therefore were considered personal enemies of every Jew. Some archaeologists found statements uh, in Jewish writings that uh, one example said that if they were to see a Gentile fall into the sea, do not help him, for that man is not thy neighbor. So where do they get this? They pull it out of thin air. Where do they get this idea that non-Jews were their enemies so they were to hate them? Well, it could have been a number of places. The first one, they could have misinterpreted Leviticus chapter 19. So Leviticus 19, beginning at verse 17, says this. You shall not hate your fellow countryman in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So this text could have been taken as the text that they interpreted to mean only my fellow countrymen, only my Jews, uh, I am to act this certain way. Okay, yeah, I won't hate my fellow countrymen, but I'll hate those who aren't Jews. Well, they must have been like many today who like to ignore the rest of the text. Because if you read just a few texts later in verse 33, it says, When a stranger resides with you in the land, you shall surely do him no wrong. In verse 34, The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you. That sounds like love your neighbor as yourself, doesn't it? So that sounds like don't show partiality, right? He says, the stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you. Meaning, you're to not discriminate. You're to not show partiality. You're to treat them as you would treat your own countryman. And here's what it says. You shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So God gives this command and the reason for it because they too were aliens in Egypt. He's saying, look, you were aliens in Egypt. Now, therefore, when you go into the promised land, treat those who are aliens just as you would treat yourself. Love them as you would love yourself. So if you take those two passages together, the neighbor cannot mean only your fellow Jews. The neighbor means all of your fellow mankind. Furthermore, Jesus clarifies who your neighbor is in Luke chapter 10. Turn there with me, Luke chapter 10, very familiar passage. Uh, The Good Samaritan, it's called. We're going to begin at verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. 
but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? You catch that? Wishing to justify himself, he wanted Jesus to give him the answer, your neighbor is your fellow Jew. And he could say, yeah, well, then I've done it. I've loved my neighbor as myself. But Jesus, instead of telling him what he wanted to hear, the oral teachings of the day, instead of doing that, he gives them this story of the good Samaritan. And he gives this story by giving this story of the good Samaritan, where the man was robbed, left half dead. The three Jews, the priest and the Levite, They came and they turned the other way. You know the story. And then the Samaritan came, who the Jews hated, because they were half-Jews. I see some years ago, some Jews intermarried with the pagans of the land. And so they were were, uh, half-Jews. They hated Samaritans so deep in their hearts that they would not even step in their land. And they had to step in their land to get to the north, so they'd actually go around either side. They would not go through Samaria. That's how much they hated the Samaritans. And Jesus gives this picture, this story, of the Samaritans, the only one to stop and help this poor man who was beaten and left half dead, who, he doesn't say, but probably was a Jew. And Jesus says, who was shown to be a neighbor to the man? And they, they answered with a Samaritan. And he says, go and do the same. So Jesus, in this illustration, confirms what we read in the Old Testament, that your neighbor is not only those in your clique. Your neighbor is not only those in your social circles. Your neighbor is all of your fellow mankind. And the Jews missed that. The rabbis missed that. Uh, So where did they get this idea of hating your neighbor? Could have been from that. It also could have been if you read some of the Psalms and you get to the imprecatory Psalms. You ever read some of those? Uh, Those Psalms where David is calling down judgment upon his enemies and asking God to slay his enemies. They could have gotten it from that. Okay, But those are misapplied texts when you use that. Those were judicial in nature from God judging other nations. And they were reserved for the army, the civil magistrate. Uh, It it had nothing to do with personal relationships. And that's what Jesus is after in this text. Uh, Jesus is talking about personal relationships. And it's almost a continuation of last week in the eye for eye, tooth for tooth uh, text. Uh, When David was praying these psalms, these imprecatory psalms, uh, one, in, in Psalm, verse, uh, Psalm 139, he actually talks about hating God's enemies. He says, I hate them, God, with a perfect hate. How do you reconcile that, right? Well, you've got to remember that David was not hating them because they were personally attacking David. David hated them because they were affront to his king, And friends, we can hate the things that God hates. Matter of fact, we should hate the things that God hates. But the hatred that we have is for the things that that attack the nature and the glory of our king. The nature and glory of our king. I believe it was John Calvin who once said, uh, is that when a master is attacked, the dog barks. Or something like that, right? 
When our master attacks, we should bark. We should hate those things. But friends, we can hate those things and we can love the people at the same time. You see, I hate, I hate to my core baby murder and baby sacrifice. Those that have ministered where that actually takes place, you can hate what takes place. You can even hate how, God, how Satan is using pawns, people, pro-aborts, to usher women in to kill their babies. But at the same time, you can love them. At the same time, if you see one of them that are in need, say they get a flat tire, you can love them by helping them if it's within your capacity to do so. Because that's the difference. We're going to get to that next week. Because those same people that hate God, that hate babies, when they see your flat tire, they do what the world does. They rejoice because their enemy is suffering. And that's what Jesus is addressing here. He's addressing personal relationships. That we should not rejoice in our enemies a demise that we should not hate our enemies, that we should love them. And so there's tension there, uh, but again, that's okay. But again, the Old Testament didn't teach that it's okay to hate people and your enemy. It, te- it taught the opposite. So again, they used their oral traditions to negate the word of God. Some passages that were very clear in the Old Testament that they missed were like Exodus 23, verse 4 and 5. That said, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, what do you do? You see your enemy's ox, donkey, their animal, the enemy that hates you, that has reviled your name, they're your personal enemy, and you see their animal wandering away. (laughs) That's their problem. What is the law of God say in Exodus it says you shall surely return it to him if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load you shall refrain from leaving it to him you shall surely release it with him the parallel passage to Exodus 23 I read it in one of our catechisms it's Leviticus I believe it's 22 I could be wrong, but it says if your neighbor's enemy or ox wanders, what do you do? You return it. So the Old Testament taught whether it's your neighbor, your friendly neighbor, whether it's your enemy, if it's within your capacity to love and to do good, you're required to love and to do good. They missed Proverbs 25, verse 21. If your enemy is hungry... Give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. These passages speak to personal interactions with your enemy. In Job chapter 31, uh, verse 31, Job, they miss this as well. Job, in this chapter, verse chapter 31, he's asserting that he is innocent, not perfect, but he's innocent of some wrongdoing that caused all this bad upon him. And verse 31 of chapter 31 says this, Have the men of my tent not said, 
Who can find one who has not been satisfied with meat? Oh, excuse me, verse 29, back up. (laughs) Uh, Have I rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy or exalted when evil befell him? No, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life in a curse. So again, the oral traditions stand over and against God's word. God's word never taught to hate your enemies. Uh, On the contrary, Job is saying, if I even spoke evil against my enemy, if I even exalted in their demise, that is a sin. But he said, no, I have not allowed my mouth to sin. So you can see how the Jews' oral traditions, their misinterpretation and misapplication of the law had devastating effects. They were no longer an example of God's grace and power to the world, but as Jesus said, they became hypocrites who shut off the kingdom of heaven from the people and do not even enter it themselves. Matthew 23 13. Their traditions stood over against God's word and it had devastating effects. Another example in Jesus' ministry was in Mark chapter 12. Uh, this account is actually found in all three Gospels. Mark chapter 12. The Sadducees came to Jesus testing him, uh, gives him the ex- uh, they tell him that you know, Jesus, there were seven brothers and, and each of them married. Uh, or one married a woman, he dies, so his brother marries her, and then he dies, so then the next brother marries her, then he dies, and it continues to where all of the brothers died, and they were all married to the woman. So they asked Jesus, who's going to have her in the resurrection? And he answers the question, and then gets to the error of their oral tradition, which the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. But they're coming to Jesus to ask them, him, about the resurrection. Do you see the irony? They were coming to test him. They wanted to catch him. Okay? Jesus answers their question, but then he says in Mark chapter 12, verse 26, But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage of the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham? the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. You see what Jesus says there? You are greatly mistaken. The tradition of the Sadducees, how they held no resurrection, had devastating and eternal effects. Again, friends, the Jews were guilty of creating their own systems of morality and doctrine by ignoring or twisting Scripture. We see that rampant in today's culture. We see that running rampant in today's uh, Americanized version of Christianity, where we create our own systems of morality. We create our own systems of doctrine. We, we take a little Scripture here and a little Scripture there to make it fit into our own framework into our own presuppositions. Uh, the church today in our culture, in our, uh, in our country, is anemic of the word of God. Instead of the man standing in the pulpit saying, thus says the Lord, we get effeminate, skinny jean so-called pastors that are entertaining with funny stories, motivational speeches, sprinkled 
with a little verse here and a little verse there. While rejecting good traditions, while rejecting good uh, oral traditions, they hold to their own systems and their own traditions and fit the text to them instead of actually doing the hard work of bringing out the true meaning of what God says in the word of God. Before we find fault with the Jews, we need to look at our own life. And we need to understand that the word of God, God speaks with one voice. And as, as one theologian said, the text can never mean what it never meant. We need more men who can stand in the pulpits and exposit the text and say, Thus saith the Lord. Before we can ever have a great revival in our nation, in our culture, we must have a widespread return and reformation to Scripture. The great revivals throughout history came about by a repentance and a return to expositional preaching, not by some mystical and emotional experience. We see this throughout history in the great revivals. We also see this in the actual Bible itself. And I'm going to try to end uh, in Nehemiah chapter 8. A great reformation happened. Nehemiah chapter 8, if you'll turn there. It's before your Psalms and Proverbs and Job. Nehemiah chapter 8, starting verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. The first thing we see in that revival is there is a desire for the people to hear the word of God, not traditions of man and not what men think. Okay? not man's opinion. We need more people who want and crave the word of God. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding, meaning they were children and babies. They didn't usher them off into children's church. On the first day of the seventh month, he read from it, from the law, before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And then the priests also began to read the word of, uh, word of God, but also look at verse 8. They not only read from the book of the law, it says in verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. That is expositional preaching. They read the law, they interpreted the law, and they applied the law to the people. And what happens? They break out in repentance. Read the rest of the chapter. They weep because they hear the word of God explained to them, and they realize their traditions, their systems of morality, the things that they thought to be correct, all came crumbling down, and it was the word of God that did it. It wasn't entertainment it wasn't funny stories 
anecdotal evidence. It wasn't any of that. It was the Word of God preached with power. It was the Word of God preached uh, expositionally. The true sense of God's Word came to life, and people were revived, the whole nation, through repentance. That's what we need. That's what we need to have a revival, not shallow theology, some hyped-up experience, some emotional, mystical experience. That's not revival, friends. This is revival. Well, in conclusion, I want to ask you, what traditions could you be holding on to that could be in error? You know, the traditions that I opened up with, the two or three examples that I gave to you, some years ago, I would have held to those traditions. So ask yourself, what traditions are you holding on to? What systems of morality, what doctrinal systems are you holding to that could be in error? Or perhaps you don't even see God's word as being sufficient for all areas of your life. So in some areas, you look for man's wisdom and adopt the teachings of man to solve issues that God speaks to. Psalm 19, verse 7 and 8 says, The law of the Lord is what? Perfect. Restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Is that how you view God's law? Do you view God's law as perfect or just an option? And I'm going to go look for what man says. And I'm going to look for man's wisdom to help me in this area of life, in the area of life where God speaks to in his word. Paul said this to Timothy in 1 Timothy, chapter, uh, verse Timothy 8, says, uh, verse 8, he says, The law is good if used lawfully. The law of God is good, my friends. We should never be embarrassed about God's law. It is good if it is used lawfully. The Jews used it unlawfully, and it resulted in grave consequences. We must hold our traditions, our own presuppositions, to the law of God and submit to it wholly. Because of our sin, we can't hear clearly from God. Because of our sin, we can't hear clearly from God. So it takes work to read God's word, to study God's word, to meditate upon God's word, and to apply the word of God to your life. The Pharisees, they did not submit to the word of God, but they created their own standards and submitted to their own traditions and systems of morality. Friends, Can I ask you, are you wholly submitted to God's word? Are there areas of your life that conflict with God's word, but when you hear it, you ignore it or make excuses for why you need to hold on to your own system of morality? Are you wholly submitted to God's word or are you wholly submitted to your own authority, your own systems, your own ethics? your own traditions. One of the marks of a regenerate heart is having an unlimited obedience to the word of God. 
a heart that says, yes, Lord, I'm willing to change my thinking, my lifestyle, my whatever, if I am convinced that your word stands in opposition to my lifestyle. That is a mark of a heart that God has changed. And as we're going to see next week, we're going to see how that heart is clearly different to the world when it comes to how we love our friends, how we love our enemies. And we're going to see that it reflects the very nature of God, who while you were enemies with God, the word says he reconciled you through the death of his son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that you reconciled us, God, while we were enemies, Lord. You reconciled us through the death of your Son. And you call us, God, to love our enemies. Lord, I pray that you would help us, God. Help us to submit our own traditions, God, that when they conflict with the Word of God, Help us, God, to wrestle with the scriptures to see if these things are true and help us to have a submissive spirit, God, to make changes in our life, changes in our heart, changes in our mind, God, so that we, Lord, can submit to you and your word and not to our own presuppositions, our own traditions. Lord, as we see the devastating effects that the people who you created through Abraham when they created their own traditions, God, adding to your word, taking away from your word, misinterpreting it, twisting it to fit their own system of morality, we see the devastating impacts of it, God. Help us, God, not to be those people who hold so tightly to our traditions, God, but help us, Lord, to be always reforming to the word of God, always reforming every area of our life to the word of God. Help us to properly interpret your word, Help us to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Help us, God, to use sound hermeneutical skills, God, that are in your word to to hear clearly from you, God. And at the end of it all, God, we pray that Christ would be glorified, that we would be conformed to the image, that we would submit our traditions to you so we would be conformed to Christ, we would be more like Christ, so God, the world, when they see our lives, when they hear our conversations, when they hear our speech, that they would hear a reflection and see a reflection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, we thank you, we give you all honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.